Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Mike Calvin. They say I'm an award-winning journalist, author, and filmmaker. Mike, you've achieved such a lot in your trade. I know you've excelled covering a number of different sports as well. Um, of course, we're here to talk about your work in football today. Um, you've twice been named Sports Reporter of the Year, have collected the Sports Writer and Sports Journalist of the Year Award as well. Uh, the Nowhere Men, your book about scouting and football, won uh, the Times British Sports Book Award 2014. Living on the Volcano, your treatise on the stresses and strains of modern managers was shortlisted for the 2015 William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award. State of Play Under the Skin of the Modern Game was longlisted for the 2018 William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award. No Hunger in Paradise, your look at football academies, young players and how the game treats them was shortlisted for the British Sports Book Awards 2018. Um, I hope I've got all that right. Um, yet you describe yourself as a hack, a hack down to my scuffed trainers. Um, for me, if I can continue the hagiographic hey opening to this episode, um, for me, you're the finest chronicler of the game in its current state, good and bad. You uh, made an old hack blush. <laughs> I wonder how you respond to that charge of, me, of how I've described you there. Um... I, I think that what my career, if it's of any significance, uh, reflects is the way that the game that I entered, journalism, sports writing, mm. has evolved. Mm. You're a symbol of that evolution mm. here at Football Ramble. Um, and I found that you have to keep moving in sports journalism, sports writing. And I felt five to seven years ago that I could see newspapers beginning to be pushed to the margins mm. and I'd always wanted to write long form mm. and the ultimate form of long form is obviously books mm. and um, you know I'd started off as a, as a kid um, I, I wrote my first book at, at the age of 19 when I was at uh, Reg Haters Agency in Fleet Street which is one of the great the famous places. Haters Agency yeah yeah, yeah. and, and uh, that was a, a, a book on cricket captaincy with the then England captain Ray Lingworth um, did a book off the back of um, the round the world yacht race that I competed in and then it all went fallow and I was doing all my, my newspaper stuff columnist and chief sports writer and all that sort of malarkey and I wanted to get back into uh, as I say really sort of forensic work mm. um, you know as a columnist in a newspaper you've got a thousand words maybe 1200 if you're lucky yeah. to actually get on it, there's a, always a degree of superficiality in it. Mm. Books, you've got 100,000 words to really get underneath the skins of things. 
and I was very lucky. I, you know, I think it's like any any aspiring journo listening to this, you have to back yourself. Mm. And I found uh, a lucky, you know, a friend, uh, Kenny Jacket, who was the manager at the time at Millwall, and um, wanted to do a book on what it's really like, the realism of professional football. And to do that, I wanted to basically to be embedded at Millwall in the dressing room, on the bench during matches, in coaches' meetings, and basically be the observer that mm. football very, very uh, rarely allows you to be. This is for your book family, of course. Yeah, it yeah. was, yeah. And um, and I had to publish it myself. And I, fortunately, it sold about 25,000 copies. So it, it worked for me, and it, it then enabled me to go into you know, what we could call mainstream um, uh, publications or, or certainly publishing houses. And I found that a hugely educational experience. You know, bear in mind, when I went into Millwall, I'd probably been around the game for 25 years. Mm. But I, until you actually feel it and taste it and touch it through the experiences of people who actually become friends, mm. um you really don't get an idea of what it means to be a professional footballer, mm. that institutionalised insecurity, that very casual brutality. Mm. And there was, it was, there was this sort of band of brothers feel about it, which really sort of hooked me. And it, it basically made me understand that a book done well, and I'll leave that to other people to make that judgment on, on what I do, uh, gives you the sort of insight that actually the game really doesn't want to give you. Mm. So that 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 was they're the trying to thing. shield you from that. Yeah, because you know, as you know, Luke, we we live in a an homogenised sporting culture. We live in a world where PRs are acting as prison gatekeepers more yeah. than than facilitators who they should be. Um, and you know, it was interesting just to divert for a second. You know, I. I I took a three-year sabbatical from writing to to set up a um, a sports organisation called the English Institute of Sport mm -hmm. with Steve Cram and a lady called Wilma Shakespeare. Great, great name, great lady. Yeah. And uh, uh, we basically looked after all the Olympic sports in terms of all the support staff, you know, psychs, physios, doctors, etc. Yeah. And so then I saw how sport worked then, but... I wanted then to transfer that knowledge into my writing and the the sort of amalgamation of my experience in, in elite sport going into a a world which has been basically closed off to journalists, i.e. the dressing room, yeah. um, enabled me to actually lift the veil, if you like. And you're right in the middle of it because in terms of you know PRs, they don't want you to know what's going on behind that yeah. closed door. But every you know, everyone is listening to this podcast will want to know just a little bit extra. Just a, so and I think there's a great there's a great sort of um fallacy that reality and authenticity in sport is actually a bad thing. Actually, I think it's the best thing possible because clubs and it's very interesting with Millwall, um, you know, they they took a gamble. Uh, in allowing someone like me to, you know, rampage around the place, and uh, that took a lot of almost, you know, collective corporate courage for them to do so. Of course, yeah. But yeah. they, but they, but as Ken said, uh, you know, he he basically agreed to do this in about fifteen seconds, right? Because he basically said, "Look, we want to put across what this club is all about and what the game is all about." Now, to be honest, when when I produce a manuscript, he his eyebrows sort of shot shot back up. Around his forehead. But do you think it's because at the time Millwall had a negative reputation anyway, and they thought this could be a way of reinventing ourselves? I think that's an element of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know they are still judged stereotypically. Yeah. When you when you when you look at you know whenever there is a periodic eruption, there is always there are always the same stories that are written. You get the same guys going into the toilets to see if there's any cocaine traces. You know the yeah. whole bit. Yeah. Uh, what I found was a blue-collar club full of good people, really good, solid people. And 
and I, you know, I'd, ex- I'd extend that to the, um, to the terraces as well. You know, I met a lot of guys. You knew who were the tasty ones. Yeah. And, but getting to know them, they be- you began to understand the culture of that particular club. And it, and it was important to me because we live in an age where clubs are becoming divorced from their communities. Their roots, yeah. And this one, for good or ill, is still very close to its roots. And that means that you get effed and jeffed if you don't put in 100%. Mm. It means that uh, there is, you know, emotionally, it's every, every game, every season is an emo- emotional roller coaster. And, but within that, they do essentially adopt folk heroes. And, you know, they might not be names that are familiar to people who are listening to this podcast, but they're people who are solid people. Yeah. And what that year enabled me to do was to work out how a dressing room worked. So there were a group of five or six players, senior players, who I christened the governors. And they essentially set the professional and personal standards for the dressing room. And that could be quite a harsh process. Um, and it and it goes on. When they leave Millwall, a little bit of Millwall goes with them. So to give you an example, uh, Gaz Alexander, a striker, um, was loved at Millwall. His son's just broken into the first team there now. Uh, he left Millwall to go to Brentford. And uh, there was a Premier League loan player at Brentford who arrived in his 100 grand Mercedes. Mm -hmm. And this is at a club in League One where the guys basically share the cars. Yeah. And he was giving it a big one. And, oh, this crap hotel they put me in. Oh, you know, what am I doing here? Looking around the dressing room. And Gary walked across the dressing room and grabbed him by the throat and Mm. put him up against the wall Mm. and said, if you fucking cost me my win bonus, Mm. I'm going to kill you. Mm. And he dropped him. Mm. That guy left the club with a an imaginary thigh injury right. that day. Right. And um, so, kind of a, the old meets the new in quite dramatic circumstances. Yeah, but really. what he'd done, what Gareth had done, he'd recognised a, a flaw in someone's character straight yeah. away and instinctively. And that mm. particular player has been uh, a huge underachiever. Mm. You, 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 you. You covered a lot of different aspects of football in your career so far, and uh, this quote from you I found pretty interesting, which was, I was inspired by my first grown-up book, uh, The Football Man by Arthur Hopcraft. I was 12 and captivated by the line, I am a reporter trying to reach the heart of what football is. Is that something you see as your job, to reach the heart of what football is, whether that's changed over the years or whether that will go on to become something else? Is that something you're continually striving to do? Yes, because um, it's a world in which... It's 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 a bit kaleidoscopic at the moment. Where is where is the reality? Where is the best image? Mm. And because of modern culture, it can be manipulated. You know, social media manipulates personality and almost creates personality. It's only when you get deep into it that you can understand the realities of what you know you're trying to deal with. So, uh, you know, modern journalism. When when it started off, you know, when I, st- I started off, basically to give you an idea, my dad found that book, the the, the football man. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was a, a cable jointer's mate for the electricity board. I was council house lad from from Watford, and um, he found this book um, in an empty house. That in fact he found two books, uh, which and the, both those books informed my life in many ways. There was uh, a glossary of the 1945 general election, and that was a time of installation of the National Health Service, Nye Bevan, um, and it sort of informed my political beliefs in sort of you know benevolent socialism, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. The other one, the, the football man, it just it was magical because I don't know, it, you know, there were there were unicorns dance, dancing all over the pages. Yeah. It was lovely because the the, the the expressive way he wrote and the key thing that came across to me was the way that his characters lived, not as caricatures, but as people, people that you could recognize and facets of their personality that you could recognize in your daily life. So as a young kid reading that, I was just enraptured by it and basically had that sort of um, drive of the council house kid who wants to make something of himself, I Mm. suppose. 
And so that that meant me badgering the local paper. Um, I managed to, there was a, the, uh, my dad knew the guy who used to de- uh, deliver the evening standards on the Saturday. You know, this was when, you know, there was still the Saturday night classifieds. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So at 13, I was in Fleet Street um, working as a copy boy for the Evening Standard during those, um, you know, those Saturday afternoons. At 13? Yeah. Wow, okay. Uh, and uh, and the sports editor there was a guy called Tom Clark, a uh, fantastic sports editor who actually, funny enough, gave me my first ever national byline. When I was at um, Haters, I was asked to go in, and this is how stories recur, right? I was asked to go in and work with a, a fantastic journalist called Brian James on a double-page piece looking at the prices of modern kit. And this is like in 1970-something. Right. You know, 1979 or something. And uh, so these same issues that we're talking about today were there, were there then. And uh, so I did all the research, phoning up clubs, all that sort of stuff, uh, the, the, the sort of grunt work. And then Brian did the, did the wonderful words. And I got my my byline of of Tom. So it's it's just the, these little things that you know are your signposts along. Give you a bit way. of encouragement, so it spurs you on for the next thing. And absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so then I joined my local paper. Uh, I jacked in my A levels when I was I was at local grammar school. And um, uh, it's funny, everything I've done in my life, people have told me not to do. Right. So I've gone the other way. So for instance, when I when I told my headmaster that I was leaving. Uh, the grammar school and going into the local paper and dumping all my education. He looked at me as though I'd, you know, urinated in his letterbox. He right. was just like, are you sure, sort of thing. Well, he's mu- actually, he was much too posh to say, are you sure? <laughs> um, and then after about a year, I was headhunted by by Reg Hater um, to join his agency. And so, um, again, my editor, my first editor um, uh, on, the, on the Watford Observer basically told me I'd never make it as a journalist because I didn't have the proficiency certificate, the NCCJ right. one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, it's a piece of paper. I'll go and get in the real world. And the real world in uh, sort of 17, 18, was going to games for Reg and doing five runners, three for tabloids, two for broadsheets, maybe you'd do a live radio piece in the middle of it. And basically, it's sink or swim stuff. Yeah. And also... You know, I'm so old that this, you know, it was before internet. Yeah. So you'd, you'd walk in and, you know, you get a bit of cockiness about it at that particular yeah. time. So I walked in one one day to Reg. Now, I t- I'll paint you a little bit p- picture about Reg. He was one of the first agents uh, in cricket. And he used to be a cricket reporter and used to, you know, go on the boats to Australia and all that. So his first client was Dennis Compton, the right. cricketer. Yeah. And so here is here am I, 18, I'm I'm Dennis Compton's um, ghostwriter, right, for his Sunday Express column, and he was a lovely, lovely guy. And they used to go out on the on the lash uh, at Elvino's, and you'd I'd be sort of summoned into their presence, and it would be Reg and Dennis Compton, his big mate Bill Edridge, and you know these sort of like cricketing cricketing gods, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and um, so I'd say to um, uh, Dennis, "Oh, I think we should do this week." Okay, old boy, go away and write it. I'm sure it'll be wonderful. So, in other words, he's, he's getting money for our rope. Yeah. Um, so, I'm then into a scene where I think I'd do anything. So, I walk in one one day, and and Reg, he had his own office at uh, at the end there, and he had one of these old school sit up and beg typewriters, and you'd know when he'd had a long lunch because his head would hit the keys and stay there for about an hour in the <laughs> really? afternoon. Yeah, okay, right. Good stuff. <laughs> um, and he called me one day and said, uh, he said, Calvin, I've got, I've got something for you. It was the ITV World of Sport annual. Uh, we want 2,500 words from you today. And I said, yeah, fine, no problem. What's that then? It's on frog jumping. So I'm thinking, Whoa. frog jumping, how do I get... <laughs> 25 words, let alone 2,500 <laughs> yeah. words on this. And again, no Google. So yeah. I'm thinking, what the hell? And there's something at the back of my mind. Someone told me that it was it was um, quite prevalent, quite popular in the southern states of America. So I phoned the US Embassy and I said, look, this is, gonna, this is the press office. I said, this wasn't a wind-up? No, this wasn't a wind-up. I did it. No. <laughs> I, I, and, and I thought is, it was like going to... Get you to make go and get tartan paint or something? No, 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 no. it's true. Right, okay. So uh, I basically 
phone this phone this press officer, and the guy said, "Really?" Uh, he said, "Hang on a second. And there was another guy in, in one of the like the visa offices or whatever, and he came from Alabama, and he knew all about frog jumping. So I interviewed him, <laughs> and I, you know, I stretched it. Yeah, I bet you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there we go. And so, and you know, it was then I looked at like sort of you know encyclopedias to get the different types of frogs and all that yeah. sort of stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah, okay, right. So I suppose you know the moral of the story is if you're a journo, uh, you've got to be resourceful. Sure, and it's it's actually. And I'm not one of these old boys who basically said oh, I was great in my day. Uh, I think it's it's fantastic. You know, the internet is a fantastic resource. It can be it can be used badly, um, but the amount of information on your your fingertips now is huge. So, so do you see yourself as someone who is conscious of the idea that you straddle both the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things as well? Because yeah. you do a lot of podcasts and you do a lot of video. You do, as you said at the start, you do a lot of different bits and pieces. So. Are you conscious of that role as being a, a, a someone with one foot in both camps? Yeah. I, what I found when I came back from um, doing those two or three years at the Institute, where I, I was out of writing, um, although obviously, you know, still consuming and everything else, mm. what struck me was the lack of self-esteem that journalists had. Mm. And, you know, basically I had really good people basically saying, look, I'm just going to hang on for as long as I can. This thing's going down the toilet. What uh, year are we talking about here? We're Mike? talking maybe, what, 2009, 10? Okay. Something like that. About, you know, nine, ten years ago, basically. Mm. And it was interesting that there were the first signs of, of almost um, – a lack of self-regard, which is amazing when you think about journalists. We were yeah. maniacs. Well, because the roles, because the the the, the vocation has been so disregarded. There was a sense that you know the moves to what you know. I I started off in Fleet Street. You know, I got yeah. my first job at the Daily Telegraph. And that was a big deal, right? Oh, massive yeah, deal, of course, massive deal. And um, I'd had a year in television before that. Um, Blag my way onto Thames Television, which is the what I used to call the cat up a tree news. Yeah, which was uh, the six, and finally this and then finally that. Well, yeah, it was like the six. Yeah. It was six o'clock at Thames. You know, the, the and it was, I had a two man desk with a guy called Steve Ryder, who you know went on to far better things. Yeah, and um, hmm. you know, uh, so I went to the Telegraph, and you know, of the culture of that time, uh, I actually had my interview in a pub. In in the in a pub that no longer exists called the King and Keys. It's fairly typical from what I from what I've been told about uh, it. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. pretty heavy drinking culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, that was one. It's one of those pubs. It was a very narrow, dark pub, and uh, your feet stuck to the carpet. Right. It was one of those pubs. Yeah. And um, having done that formality, I then had to go and see the managing editor of the Daily Telegraph, a guy called Eastwood, who was terrifying. It was like walking into Mordor, going into his yeah, office. Yeah. He had this massive mahogany desk and a little bit like, um, the only other one I've, I've, I've noticed, was I went to see Bernie Eccleston once <laughs> and he had this massive desk. Both Probably couldn't see him behind it, could you? Well, exactly. Both small men. <laughs> right, see, okay. Each yeah, one yeah. was the same. Right. And um, with, with Bernie, your the chair is actually in a, in a dip in the room. So it's, it's doubly right. so. But, right. but with, with Eastwood, what he did, he, he put the chair... That, so you basically had to sink into the chair. So you're looking up at him, right? And he basically says to me, Calvin, said, there's one thing I've got to tell you. Um, I don't know the colour of your politics, and I don't want to know about it through the, your writing. Yeah, is that clear? I said yes, sir. And I did call him sir. It was yeah. really is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's it. You can go now. You're well recommended. Bang. So right. that's it. That's me in Fleet Street, and uh, I had a couple of years uh, covering Northern Ireland um, up to the. Um, 1986 World Cup, hmm. and uh, yeah, that was that was that was you know, had some surreal nights. That was the time when you actually uh, used to travel with a team. You know, when I was I was I had a a, a job between haters and going to the TV uh, at Westminster Press newspapers, who basically had 15 um, evening papers and a couple of dailies and morning papers, and. My my title was chief sports writer. Mm. Well, I was the only sports writer. Right, okay, yeah. But my job was to do all the major events. So basically, at nineteen twenty, I was, uh, I, you know, I did the uh, my twenty first birthday um, at the nineteen eighty Olympics in Moscow, mm. um, and my first World Cup was nineteen eighty two, uh, and this was how things have changed. So we get to the airport in Bilbao, and 
um, we get a lift to the hotel in the England team bus. Mm. Um, and I, I remember, you know, I, I sat next to um, Ray Wilkins on the bus, and Ray was the youngest member of the the England squad, and I was the youngest member of the Hack Pack. Mm. And so I'm saying, oh, do they take the piss out of you like they take the piss out of me? He yeah. said, Yeah. I said, You wouldn't believe it, you know. And that was a time again where there was there was human contact between Journo and well, it's, it's like the book. Um all played out the Pete Davis book about yeah. World Cup 90 he's, the access would be unthinkable now wouldn't it yeah be, I mean something you talked about earlier about how what is the real football because it's a kaleidoscope and you don't know what's real and what isn't anymore back then it, it kind of wasn't that but your your um your book no, no book that you've written that I, that I know of sums up this straddling of the old versus the new than the nowhere men about scouting about how talent is spotted by old school scouts and how that regularly butts up against this new age of data and analysis and mm. and and I suppose the battle of wills between both approaches. I mean, t- talk to us a bit about, about the process of writing that because to me it's, it's probably my favourite of your, of your books. You know, there's, there's, a, there's an essential romanticism about that, but it's a very brutal world. Yeah. Um, were you and- surprised about how poorly and ha- paid and treated sc- scouts were in the modern game? Because this book was written in, what, 2013, something like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, massively. Yeah. And, and it's funny, actually, because what I found with books is that they tend to actually almost roll into one. So the genesis of Nowhere Man, I was in uh, Kenny Jackett's office, manager's office at Millwall after a game, and Jamie Johnson, his chief scout, was in there. And, uh, you know, we were chatting around, he'd seen the, obviously read the book, and we were chatting about that. And he said, oh, you should do a book on us, Scouts. And it just clicked. I thought, well, no one knows about these guys at mm. all. Mm. And his father, Mel Johnson, who had been Chief Scout at Tottenham, been working at Liverpool, is now at Queen's Park Rangers as the, as the Chief Scout, he was my mentor. So... It was one of those, a bit like journalism, where you need to have to, you need that personal contact to get into the world. Yeah. And once you're there, you're just like Mike the writer, really. Like when I was in the Millwall dressing room, I was mm. just Mike the writer, mm. uh, even though I was like lurking around the shower. Well, I found in the dressing room that uh, I used to used to stand just inside the showers because the players couldn't see me, but I could see them. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and they... You've got to try as, and be invisible, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you just, yeah. You, you've got the old invis, you know, the invisibility yeah. cloak on, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's talking in the, in, in the nowhere, man, about these scouts who, yeah, all they get paid a lot of the time is just pennies per... Well, the amount of money per mile. 40p per mile. Yeah. And yeah. they go and, and they'll go and find a player for you and all the rest of it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the romanticism is that these are guys who've got almost like a purity of purpose. They want to be part of the game. They feel the game in their bones. And, and that's what I'm talking about is the old school scout mm. who's the guys I'm sure, you know, people listening have seen at the back of a stand, you know, the worst ones always have a club coat on. Yeah. Now, you know, you don't do that. You mm. know, that's, that's, that's being a bit leary to right. be perfectly okay. honest. Okay, okay. But the good, those guys have seen games. They've seen hundreds of games. Now I, I can spot a player by dint of the fact I've probably done about in my career, 3000 games. Somewhere, mm. I don't know. Mm. Um, you just get a feel, and you know, the, you know, I can. You know, there's a there's a player you can see and think, wow, there's something there. And um, there were, one of the one of the guys said to me, uh, he was talking actually, funny enough, about uh, Stan Collymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spotted Stan Collymore, and he would he would, he'd gone to the game to um, watch uh, a goalkeeper. It was a non-league game. He, Stan was playing for Stafford Rangers, and he. Uh, he spotted Stan as he ran out. Really? Didn't he didn't even need to actually see him kick a ball. He said it was just the way he moved, told me he was a player. Wow. Now that's that instinct. Um and he watched him for twenty minutes and left the game. So that was gonna be that's interesting because that was gonna be my next question to you, which is what do you think those play those those people with the amazing ability to spot what are they seeing that the rest of us aren't seeing because I you know I like to watch football I've seen a load of games not as many as you but I like to think I know a little bit about the game but I'm not seeing what they're seeing I don't know I don't understand how you can gauge someone's ceiling or their potential without having met them or 
find out what makes them tick and all the rest of it. Mm. But it seems that, I mean, Stan Collymore, an international level player, one of the finest strikers of his generation, playing in a non-league capacity. How does that, is it, is it a case of backfilling the narrative and the guy got a bit lucky with, with Collymore? Or do you think that he actually sees something that we don't see? Well, that, that, you know, that guy would probably have produced you know, 300, 400 footballers in his, in his career. Sure. So this, yeah. his track record speaks for itself. Absolutely. And... Um, there are things that you can look for and coaches look for, you know, decision making, mm. you know, technique under pressure, all that sort of stuff. But this is where, you know, people always say to me, is football an, an art or a science? Yeah. Now, for me, it's an art. And there has to be an art, you know, there is an artistic merit to some players. And basically, a, a good scout who's seen, you know, they talk about the scout's eye, they talk about the coach's eye. Mm. They they are seeing something almost intuitively, but maybe if you said to them after a game, well, what particularly impressed you? They might not be able to know. Mm. So that's where the importance of, of that, where you've got a guy who's seen a trillion games and will know a player, just know it. You know, it's quite sort of mystical and ethereal, you know. Do you believe in that? I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah I do, because, you know, you look at... Let's think about going to the theatre. A great actor. There is there is something about that A charisma, actor. a kind of, yeah, aura, projection. An aura yeah. about yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's... And, and, you know, so, you know, from my experience, you know, there are people who have that. You know, when I was a kid, I actually interviewed Muhammad Ali in the middle of Park Lane. Right. And that guy had magnetism. Um... I saw Bill Clinton at, at Wimbledon going to a room and basically dominate it. Yeah. Just by being there. Just by being him. Yeah. You know. So there is that. And I think what happens is that once you get that, that you know, basically you don't go and sign a player off one 20-minute burst. But what they will have done, they would then gone and checked Stan for the next four or five games. Yeah. Spoken and, to a few people around him, maybe? All that. Yeah. And I, and I think this is where, you know, m recruitment is absolutely key in modern football because, you know, you talk to manager, I did a book called Living on the Volcano, mm. when, I, when I basically talked to about 27, 28 managers. And the common theme there was the thing that screws you as a manager is bad recruitment. Mm. And uh, in a way, it's a, it's, it tempts people's ego recruitment. So you see, I don't know, that, so for instance, the owner's son at Fulham, you know, he, he basically has set himself up as this great recruitment guru. Yeah. When you know, one one would look at Fulham in the Premier League last season. Yeah. You know, and perhaps deny that. Yeah. yeah and yeah. they're you know, throwing 100 million quid at the wall. Yeah. Um, but I think where, uh, what, it's not an either or all now. And, and this is what I think I would hope people took from the, um, the nowhere men, where... You have to have the eye, but you also have to have what I call the pie, the pie chart. Yeah, it's a you bit know. of both, basically. Absolutely, bit of column A, bit of column B, and that gives you the best chance. Yeah. So you look at you look at baseball in the states, which is probably the has been at the vanguard of analytics. Mm. Someone like New York Yankees would have, um, obviously, a huge Chicago Cubs. Very similar. They have a huge. They call it the, you know the geek room. Mm. Um, so they would have you know. 50, 100 people in that geek room slaving through the numbers, looking at the algorithms. It's just since Bean and Lewis and all the rest of it in the yeah. open days, they've yeah. kind of Save taken metrics, that lead. Yeah, yeah save yeah. metrics, yeah. yeah. Um, but a club of that magnitude, like the Cubs or the Yankees, would have about 50 old school scouts. As well. Who are driving around yeah. Shitsville, Arizona, basically. Yeah, yeah. And those guys are ones who can feel... And then they they gauge their feel, even on the road by you know like a if you're given a picture as a radar gun now you can't that, you can't translate yeah. that directly into football but you see things often enough you know it you just know it so you think people who try and um, formulate the straw man argument about are you old school or are you new school it's misses the point entirely no, you're you're in school yeah yeah always always yeah you know and 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 that's what i love about scouting is that you're always learning i think the area that that perhaps has improved massively is the sort of the human dimension which is what i try and get across in my books you know in anything that i do be it 
football mainly, um, all the golf book that I've done. They're almost a study of the human condition, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And because, you you know, you see, the, people always ask me, you know, why did I get into sports writing? And, you know, when you go on the local paper, you have like three months where you've got to go and do the, the calls. You know, you've got to go and try and get a picture of a 12-year-old who's just been run over or something like that, which is a horrendous experience. Yeah. Um, the doorstep and kind of elements the job, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, with sport, it allowed me, it allows me to see the best in human nature and the worst mm. and, and make my judgments accordingly. Mm. Um, so going back to the scouts themselves, um, you know, I, the, the irony is my, my son's a scout now mm. and, and he is actually a typical hybrid modern scout where a uh, good player, uh, you know, captain the county, got to 16, was at an academy, and he made the choice. He said, Look, I, Dad, he's a winger. He said, Dad, I don't think I'm going to be quite quick enough. Mm. So he did his coaching badges, went to uni, sports coaching science, went into professional football as um, an analyst, and taken on by Brentford. Then he was headhunted by A.D. Boothroyd, who was then at Northampton. Got real world, bottom of the league two, Chris Wilder took over. Chris Wilder, you know, couldn't spell science, let alone no. you know, want it. But what an amazing job he did. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic, yeah. man. And, and it's interesting. You know, there's someone whose in, intuitive uh, style is, is actually sort of, um, is underestimated massively. Someone mm. like Chris Wilder. And it's sort of delivered him into the Premier League well, as well, on his look, own terms. And you yeah. look at, but you look at the, the sophistication of his set pieces, for instance. Yeah. They're, ma- they're fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, don't judge book by cover. Of course, yeah. Um, and so there he, you know, so he had that season in, you know, the muck and bullets of bottom of the league two, spent some time with Nike, doing some coaching, but also being their analyst. But all that time he was working as a part-time scout. He worked, mm. he worked at, uh, he worked, worked for Ken at Millwall uh, for a while when he was still, you know, 17, 18, then went to um, Wolves, did the same thing. Um, eventually Stu... Um, Weber, who um, had, had noticed him, um, took him into Norwich. So he was at Norwich last season. He's working with Burnley at the moment. So what I'm saying is that here's someone who understands the technology. He will be he, he can code a game. He analyzes the game. Obviously, with the wealth of information on things like Y Scout and everything else. You can you can basically get to your player very quickly. Yes, yeah. So he does all that. Mm. So he, he's got the he's got the techie mm. stuff, but he's also got the you know. When I used to watch TV with him um, when he was like twelve or thirteen, and I'd be watching the game, and I think I pretty much know what a player is, mm. and he would see something that I never didn't see. Mm. I thought, blimey, you know. So it's intuitive then, almost. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you hear you hear of players having a football intelligence, don't you? That you, otherwise wouldn't be seen as as the way society judges intelligence, but football intelligence, they've got it by yeah. the bucket load. Game intelligence is is one of the main features of modern football, and yeah. that's also something that a scout, a good scout, can yeah. detect. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's just, I mean, let's talk about modern football then, because in, in Living on the Volcano, as you mentioned briefly a second ago, where you go and speak to managers from all levels of the game and, and the pressures they're under and the things they have to deal with I, I came away from it thinking that it's a completely unsustainable model and that it, I mean it just it, it seemed like I, I, I had great sympathy for a, a lot of the subjects of the book particularly ones like Martin Ling and, mm. and one or two others and what they've been through but I came away from thinking thinking this is un, completely unsustainable this is not a way to to run a, a load of clubs which essentially prop up the rest of the football pyramid in terms of the bottom level. I mean, what, what did you come away from that book thinking? It was interesting. Uh, yesterday, uh, I did a radio show yesterday with Sean Derry. Hmm. And Sean's in, in the book. At Notts County. He was Notts County, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you know, there was carnage going on there then. And But he was right at the start of his managerial, managerial career and had that essential optimism, if you like. Hmm. Um, now, five years on... Um, Left Notts County, then had time at Cambridge, um, left Oxford in the summer um, where he was number two to Carl Robinson. Mm. And he was saying yesterday that, because you know, you know, you're obviously you're going to get back, and I think he would want to, but he said, Look, we all know now what the game is. And the game is you've got probably six to a, six to eight months at most. Yeah. So to your point, Luke, it is unsustainable because you look around. You know, when I when in state of play, the my latest football book and and the film that I did, I used uh, Sean Dyche as the example of the modern dynastic manager. Mm. It probably could be the last of his type. Here's someone who's gone into a football club and set a culture and an agenda from the bottom upwards, and he's taken his board with him because the board he, he said it was really interesting when he when he had his interview for the job Sean went round the table and there were four or five directors there and he said right what do you what's success looking like for you what do you want yeah and one guy said well I just want financial stability another guy said well I wanted to get us into the Premier League and he had to sort of he realised then that he had four or five different um Hey, oh, objectives, yeah. objectives, you know. Yeah. So, and so he's thinking, well, who's the most influential out of those? Yeah, yeah. take your pick. Yeah, yeah. But he was allowed to, um, you know, one of I think he's one of the most underrated managers going. Sean, don't what think is, you'll see the like of him again now. No, no. Um, it's very you know, Klopp. I suppose is a five to seven year manager. Yeah, you know, he did it at Mainz. Uh, he's going to do it again. Um, at Dortmund, Dortmund, yeah, yeah. and also, and and I, I suspect at Liverpool as well. Mm. But mostly now, you've got owners who are in it either for their ego or for their business interests. You know, you look at the carnage that's going on in League One at the moment. You know, as we're sitting here, Barry and Bolton, Barry and, Bolton yeah, yeah. and you've got guys coming into football clubs who who make their living by going into um, you know moribund com- um, companies. They used to be kind of figureheads for the community, right? It was a real yeah. honourable thing to be, I'm, I'm now so successful, I can now represent this club for the local community and yeah. hopefully do the best job I can. Although Brian Clough perhaps might disagree, but, <laughs> but most people would say that. Do you, do you fear for the way the modern game's going then? Because in state of play, you talk a lot, it's a broader look at the game, isn't it? And you yeah. talk about the different state of football in 2018 as it was then. Um, I, I feel like as someone who's worked... Yeah, in this very small part of broadcasting and football for a long time now. I don't think, I can't remember a time where people who know more about the game than me have not talked about the game going to hell in a handcart and all the rest of it and it being really worrying. But do you, as someone who's, as I said at the start of this, has chronicled the game to, to me at least as, as well as, if not better than anyone else, do you sincerely worry for where the game's going? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about, God, this is a bit of a, a, bit of a shit show? Yeah, I look at some of the things that are going on at Premier League level. I look at um, you know the amorality of the game. 
You know, I, and that's something that came across to me very, very strongly when I did No Hunger in Paradise, which was about the young kids, kids and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that why it's very keenly felt in that, isn't it? Because they're young and they're vulnerable and they need to be looked after. And, and you see the impact on families. Yeah, you know, good or bad. You, you know, it, it was funny. There was a, there was a, a guy there. Um, I always pride myself on on professional objectivity, basically. Yeah. And with one of the fathers in that book, I lost it. I basically, really? I just said, what the fuck are you doing mm. with, your, with your son? Now, I was completely out of order. Mm. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it wasn't one of the great venues of legends. We were in a Frankie and Benny's in Chesterfield. At the <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's got Shakespearean. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actually... What was know, he doing so bad? What was he doing so wrong? Well, it was a guy, a, a, a guy uh, his son was called Zach Brunt. Mm. Now, very, very potted history of Zach. At five, he goes and joins Sheffield United... At six, he wins a competition at the Manchester United Soccer School that uh, David Beckham won. Right. Uh, his first training session back at Sheffield United at the age of six, live on Sky Sports News. Uh, wow. Okay. Ma- Manchester United get him. Uh, his father drives him up and down from Chesterfield to uh, Manchester, screaming at the lad in the back of the car at six years old. You don't realise what you've got. You've been on the same pitch as Best and Law and Charlton. Blimey. It was so he lost all perspective uh, completely, and you witnessed all this. Uh, no, he 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 admitted to it, right? Okay, okay. Uh, the, the father, you know, and great credit to him. I thought he came, he came, he, he broke down in tears when he was talking to me about it. He said, credit well, him for I, his honesty, basically. He said, I feel so ashamed, yeah. And so he went from Manchester United six to eight, then Aston Villa, then he falls out with Aston Villa. And Aston Villa won't let him play for anyone else unless they get paid 10 grand as a transfer fee at 10 years old. Blimey. Manchester City eventually take him on. He falls out with Manchester City. So the lad's in, in, the, in the living room one day saying, I want to go to Brazil. And dad said, why? He said, well, that's the best, best footballers in the world. And the compromise that they reached was that he'd go to Spain. Hmm. And so his dad, um, and to give you an idea of the family history, there were three other siblings. Two were severely handicapped um, with um, cerebral palsy, mm. wheelchair bound, and the the other lad he had some behavioural issues. Now the whole family, and I saw this in many many different areas, are basically beholden to the golden child. So imagine that, right? You're, you're twelve, yeah. thirteen. You are going to be the meal ticket. Mm. Terrible pressure put on a kid. And so this lad Zach went to uh, Atletico Madrid's um, academy. Taken on after a couple of trials, I think he went to Villarreal. So he's thirteen. They're living in a, a flat in in Madrid. Um, after six months, uh, they get a letter through from FIFA saying he's banned worldwide because his father had basically come to uh, gone to Spain, and it broke all the sort of child trafficking rules. Right, right, okay. So he then comes back. Goes to Derby, has two years at Derby, going, falls out with them because he's now playing futsal for England at under-19 level. Ends up playing back in the park and subsequently to the book and the film, he's just been taken on by Sheffield United. So this kid, he's 16, has had the experiences of... A journeyman pro, basically. Yeah. For 10 years. Yeah. Six to sixteen, and he's ended up about restarted. Yeah. So I'm basically saying to the father, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? The the remarkable thing is the kid is really level headed. It shows you the resilience of youth, I suppose. And it was it was really Yeah, I again, one of the things about when you're writing a book and when you're researching a book, it consumes you. You must have been. You must be despairing seeing these stories. Sometimes you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 also what I found, but you know, I'm, I don't want to paint an entirely negative picture because there's some brilliant people in the game, like John McDermott at, uh, at Tottenham was a good example of someone who's got a broader holistic perspective on 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 their kids. Yeah, you know, they you know they'll be they'll be ruthless in trying to get hold of someone or getting rid of someone. Yeah, but. There is, I think, a, you know, there's some, there were some really good people that I found doing um, the um, the first film, No Hunger. Um, the guys who understand the the damage that it's caused, 
the game needs to take more responsibility, right? So the club needs. There's we, no duty. There's there's not enough duty of care, Luke. Basically, and a great example of that would be with um, in Ollie Kay's book about Adrian Doherty, mm. uh, who you know, the, yeah. the the Irish wonder kid, Northern Irish wonder kid, who got a bad injury and was essentially treated. Well, he Manchester United, listen, would argue that this isn't the case, but the book reports that he was treated very badly because as soon as he becomes injured or a player is released, they are no longer of any value to the club, and the club essentially just forget they ever existed. And so the clubs have got their role to play as well in this, right? They need to imp- help help improve it as well. Yeah, but. Have they got any incentive to do so? That's no, the, well, that's the problem. Yeah. Because, you know, the the essence of football and professional sport is that as a sportsman, as a footballer, you're a commodity. Yeah. Whether you're four years old, which I did find obscene, you know, there were mm. clubs, Manchester City knocked on a three, uh, the, the door of a three-year-old. Yeah. You know, come on. Um, uh, so, and, and, and going right up back to, I don't know, Gareth Bale. Yeah, no, I did. Gareth was in my my state of play film, and you know he, I I liked him a lot because he was given all the sort of uh, the stuff that swirls around um, Real Madrid, where you know it's it's basically a place where where fantasy is portrayed as fact, and people are making judgments on him without even speaking to him, without even knowing sure. him. Sure, and so here's someone who's been through all that mill. And I have immense respect for him basically saying, look, the only thing that matters to me is my family. Mm. And whether I go out and score a worldie in a Champions League final, my kids will think the same of me, mm. even if I do that or if I get sent off after two minutes. Or so you whatever. feel like he's got his priorities in, in yeah, order, yeah. yeah there's Which a is lo- quite hard to do in that environment, right? Yeah. There's a, and, and, you know, there are, there are certain things that you look at and you just realise the gulf between ordinary people and, you know, guys like that in terms of the material rewards. rewards. We were chatting after we'd done the film and, um, you know, I was just basically saying, look, you know, how long do you reckon you got? And he said, well, I've been in professional sport for 16 years. And so I've given up stuff and, um, you know, I still think I've got a few more years left in me, but I'm already planning what I'm going to do in my first six months after retirement. Right. I said, what's that then? He said, well... I'm going to take all my mates on a, a round-the-world golf tour and we're going to play all the big courses in the world. And uh, I say it would be between three and six months. He said, I've already costed it. I said, well, how much is that? He said, oh, it's nothing. He said, it's about, it's about 35 grand each. Well, okay. So he's going to basically take 20 of his mates right. around the world to play golf for three months. Yeah. So what's that? My, you know, my math has never been great, but well, let's say it's seven hundred grand. Try get him in on. You try getting on the trip, would you? Oh, I love it, mate. Yeah. Give my number. Yeah, I love it. I'll be, <laughs> yeah. I'll be there. I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. But but when, then I just thought, hang on a second, that's a, that's a week's wages. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? So that's the sort of thing that that you know you. I suppose those little nuggets mm. of insight that you think, well, okay. You know, we all read figures online or in the papers, but these are actual amounts that mean something and they actually do exist. Yeah. yeah. What, yeah. what do you think? So, I mean, it's a very broad, open question, and, per, and perhaps purposely so. But what, what do you think the, the near future for football looks like? I mean, you, you've got a good insight into what's what's happening now. Where does this lead us? Does it lead us on the road to ruin, or are we going to somehow save ourselves? I, I, it's a bit like global warming. I can see the ice flows beginning to break up. Right. And if you look at what's happening at the EFL, I think the management or the mismanagement of the Football League has been catastrophic. And we're probably going to see clubs not being able to fulfil their fixtures this season. Exactly. For the and, first time? Uh, yeah, well, people, I suppose, Accrington Stanley went out of business yeah. in 62, Bradford Park Avenue, people like yeah. that. But, but generally speaking, it doesn't tend to happen. No, no. And, and you know, basically, Football League, you had one job to make sure that they were fit enough to fulfil their fixtures. You yeah. failed yeah. massively. And that could be a tipping point, you think? Well, to a degree, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, if a club goes. Now, you know, it's very easy to say that in a very sort of blithe way. Yeah. But let's examine what a football club is. And a football club is, in essence, it's part of the molecules of someone's being. Hmm. Because it's 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 something that, you know, mates go on a weekly basis or if they just go at home, a, you know, a fortnightly basis. It's where the, the community has a, gets its identity in many ways. I found it when I did State of Play, uh, both for the book and the film, uh, I, I spent some time with Andy Holt, the owner at 
Accrington Stanley. Mm. Who gets it? Here's a lad, local lad made good, council house lad. He used to go down the hill uh, when the FA Cup final was, you know, a, a mega think? event. Yeah. He used to go down the hill because he didn't have a tel- telly uh, and watch it through the windows and rediffusing mm. at this particular time. Now, he's made his, made his money. He said, I don't, I've, I've you know, done all right. He probably got 10, 15 million, something like that. Mm. So he's not skint. But he wanted, uh, eventually, without even knowing it, to actually give something back to his community. And uh, he was invited in by Accrington Stanley, who were in dire straits, absolutely dire straits. And he basically said, look, there's 150 grand. Um, you know, no, no, um, you know, there, are, there are no sort of, uh, nothing, nothing held me back here. Uh, if I don't want to do anything, just keep the 150 grand. Mm. He went in there and realised that this club, this sort of downtrodden club, was probably the only thing that united an economically challenged community and it enabled him or enabled them to relate to that community. So there are you know, community programs, you know, lads and dads sessions, literary sessions. So out of 35,000 people in Accrington, probably ten to 12,000 people are actually touched by that football club. Maybe only 2,000 people watch them. Mm. There is an intrinsic worth to that football club to its community, and you know, talk to talk to John Coleman and the manager there. Eighteen years, he said, you know, uh, we probably know. He said, I probably know four or five hundred of our fans by their first name. Mm. So there's that connection, and that's you know, to answer that's you, vital for the football league, right? Because of the level they're playing at, and uh, yeah. they need to understand the role within the community. But the issue is that the football league has basically sold its soul to the Premier League. By you know, by the bullying tactics of the Premier League, which they use, P and all that, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of right, you know, we give you um, solidarity payments. Um, be good boys, or you won't get it. Yeah. Um, and I think what they've done is basically sold sowed the sh- seeds for their own decline. Because if you look at what's happening now, parachute payments are scouring the entire system. So if we look at the Championship this season, six to eight clubs have got a chance to mm. go up, probably. Mm. Mm. And most of those are in receipt of parachute money. So Huddersfield come down with 100 million or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, then that creates... So what happens when the when the parachute money runs out? You have to be really smart, like Norwich were, and Stu Webber was, really shrewd recruitment, doing your, doing your detail, doing your due, due, due diligence. Yeah. I get there in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do it that way. Yeah. Now, basically, Middlesbrough pretty much wasted their parachute money on Tony Pulis, the last bit. Mm. Um, and uh, they're in a situation where Steve Gibson is looking around and seeing Derby and one or two others selling their stadia as a sort of a way to get around the financial rules. Mm. And he's basically saying, well, hang on, I might go to court for this because it's, it's basically... You know, I'm I'm now not in a, on a level playing field, and that's mm. the problem now. Is that the football league has got there's there's no um, pretense about being a level playing field. It's all anymore. skewed now, all over the place. So yeah, so, the, so the one, looks very strange. So, yeah. So once parachute payments get into the system, basically, we are just waiting for Premier League Two, which will be. I, you know, I think all all change is going to be mirrored by and and aligned to television so if it might be this next tv deal or the next one after that uh that there will be i'm sure a a schism where you'll have premier league one premier league two probably 18 and 18 and 18 something like that and the rest will basically be cast adrift so do you do you see a sustainable 92 team future then i can see a sustainable funny enough i can sustain see a sustainable football league Outside that, because I don't know, you know, you're close to it as well, Luke. I very much get the sense from fans now that there is, people are becoming tired of the Premier League elitism, the plastic flags, the yeah. the merchandising, the relentless monetization of football. I think yeah. people are getting fed up with that. Yeah. And I've got mates who are now, they've basically dumped their season tickets and they're going to they're going to watch league basically non league football. Same, yeah, it happens a lot where I'm from. But you, 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 we used to, 
a lot of my friends now will go and watch Gosport Borough as opposed to mm. to Portsmouth or to to a Premier League game or whatever. I, th- I think, yeah, I think it's for me. It feels like for every action, there's a reaction, right? Whether, whether it be politically or financially or in sport or whatever. Mm. And ultimately, the, pe- the people will decide, won't they? And, and if they want to go and watch their local non-league team, but it, whether that means that the top level is so far away into the into the into the horizon that it's impossible to get near it again ever ever. That doesn't really necessarily matter to fans who just want to go and watch a team they have a feel a connection to because yeah. that's what fandom is all about. But there, there is this assumption by the the Premier League that they can dictate. Okay, they've got the financial muscle to do so. You know, B teams in this Checker Trade Trophy, or whatever yeah. it's called yeah. this year. Yeah, you know, they basically everyone, you know, everything that ex- uh, the experience tells you is that people don't want it. Yeah. You know, it's it's this whole idea of B team football, of under twenty feet of football. I've so I saw a lot of it when I was doing No Hunger, and it's tippy tappy, no pressure nonsense. Mm. Doesn't prepare players at all. Mm. So uh, you look at the you look at what the Premier League are trying to push through. They've got to be careful what they wish for because we're already seeing that the top six are now flexing their political muscles. With the rest of the Premier League, yes. and they're basically saying we want more than with the know, overseas money and all the rest of it. Yeah. yeah. So again, that's another um, ice flow launched. Yeah. You know, so it's so, going one way. Yeah. Uh, so whether or not, and, and the other thing I, I just wonder about is that when you look at you know, TV deals, uh, you know, I talked to a TV executive, um, you know, very high ranking one. Uh, we were talking about. You know, millennial taste. Mm. And so you take BT Sport as an example. They paid near enough a billion pounds for the Champions League. Fantastic um, draw card for them mm. in their early days. You know, brilliant competition. Uh, the ultimate club competition in my eyes in, the, in football at the mm. moment. The problem is, is that the demographic that most sponsors want to get into, the 18 to 25s, mm. don't want to watch a live game of 90 minutes. They want to watch the highlights, the goals, yeah, the incidents. And, but, but they also want, I think BT Sport have been brilliant and okay, you know, conflict of interest, I'll, I'll admit that I work for BT yeah. Sport and do my podcast but I think their behind the scenes highlight packages from Champions League matches, seven or eight minutes are brilliant. Yeah, they are very good on the website. Yeah, yeah you get the story of the rounds and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. And so I that think, might be the future of, of how young people consume the game. Well, I think now, you know, instead of 90 minutes, people are looking at 90 seconds. Yeah. And uh, and so if all those, if all that massive money is being spent on an audience that actually doesn't really exist, where does television go from there? Yeah. And we're in a world where it's beginning to splinter even further. So Amazon are coming in this year. More subscriptions, more subscriptions. Most people, a, a lot of people now, we, you know, we're living in the age of austerity, they tell us. Yeah. Will people be able to afford it? Mm. Probably not. Can they get hooky feeds? Probably can. Mm. So while that dynamic is, is, is in, in play, I, I feel it would be quite interesting to see how the television landscape changes the football landscape in the next decade because it could bring us all back a bit to reality. And reality for me is going to your local club and being with your mates. You don't need Japanese tourists, you know, with plastic bags on each arm. It's just it's what I call the pie and a pint culture. And I, I find that attractive. You know, if I wasn't watching football professionally, that's what I want to go and do. I, I want to go and, and, you know, in state of play, I, I did some stuff at Dunstable Town who were um, bundled out of their particular league. They had no money at all by by your or, uh, by Gosport, mm. who basically found money from somewhere right at the end of the season and basically got their way out of trouble. There's a, there's a saga in that as there well. There is. I, 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 know, I, know, I know it all, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know the, the lawyers will probably be yeah, listening. Yeah. But um, it was, uh, and I found that fantastic because, you know, I've been in dressing rooms, a lot of dressing rooms now, and I'm, I'm in this um, little sort of, um, I was going to say be really unkind, say hovel, hovel but it's basically a breeze block of, dressing room and a brilliant guy called Tony McCall again a bit of scout youth coach really good um, QPR Luton hmm. 
he gave his team talk, and I'm looking around at these kids, and they're, they're all playing at a decent level. Uh, what would that be, tier seven or whatever, mm. something like that? Um, well, Gosport were conference south for a bit, yeah. Yeah, so. well, it's just one below that yeah. anyway. Yeah. And um, they're not being paid. Uh, everyone else in that league is being paid. And I'm looking at them, looking at him like sort of little puppy dogs. I'm thinking, you're going to get murdered. <laughs> you're going to get murdered. I, was, I went on the bench with him and he was 4 0 down within 20 minutes. And yeah. it was just like, wow. Yeah. Um, but I, I found there was something heroic about that. So what you're talking about really is is almost a, a, a back to basics. Let's go back to the root of why we all started enjoying the game in the first place. Yeah, yeah, we didn't we didn't go there to get a twelve quid burger, did we? No. Yeah. All right, I think that's probably about a good time to end. My whatever happens in the future, Mike, I'll be very pleased if you're going to be there to document it. So thank you very much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it, and uh, a, and all the best with, with what you do in the future. That's a pleasure, mate. This was a Radio Stakhanov production. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.